Welcome, all you adventurous readers, to the epic worlds of Alfred Durblin, where we explore the life and works of this fascinating but little-known early 20th century writer, brought to you by the website beyondalexanderplatz.com. Welcome to episode four, where we discuss the first of Durblin's nine epic novels, The Three Leaps of Wang Lun. I'm Chris Godwin. And I'm Katie Kavanagh. So the aim is not to give a summary of the novel, but to put it in the context of Durblin's life in 1911-1912, as well as his own developing theory of the modern epic. Um, We're putting together a volume in the Adventurous Readers series devoted to Wang Lun. This will be a kind of a student's guide, but the aim is to enhance the reader's pleasure, not to help you pass exams. Oh, thank goodness for that, Chris. I've Mm. I've had enough of exams for the moment. (laughs) So I think the best thing for us to um, find out about is what was happening in Alfred Durblin's life at the time he wrote Wang Lun. Oh, an awful lot was happening. You could say there was about four strands of critical developments were all coalescing around this time. And the first strand, you could say, was to do with his engagement and then a year later his marriage mm-hmm. to a partner who was basically sort of, you know, preferred by the families rather than being a love match. Right. And then the second one, uh, the hospital he was working in didn't want their staff to be married. So the, uh, the staff had to leave when they got married. Gosh, was that usual practice at that time? It was fairly widespread in Europe, I think. I mean, you know, for instance, uh, female teachers for quite a long time were um, not allowed to teach once they'd got married. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible! <laughs> <laughs> Goodness, yeah. you'd be, you'd be and then the uh, staff retention. I mean, what this meant was he no longer had his kind of safe job where the work sort of came to him. He had to go and start his own medical practice, mm-hmm. uh, which he found, uh, you know, pretty um, unsettling at the time. Then the third one was his involvement with the kind of cultural ferment that was going on in Berlin at the time around modernism and expressionism. Um, There was a big art exhibition of uh, expressionist art uh, where he had uh, been very enthusiastic. Uh, And in fact, the dedication to the Wanglun book uh, is very clearly based on a a, a picture by the Italian artist Boccioni Mm -hmm. called The Street Enters the House. Right. Right? Lots of noise and things, you know, flooding into uh, what used to be sort of private spaces. Mm -hmm, And And then the final one, he'd spent a decade sort of um, not really hiding away in hospitals, but he had seen going into the medical uh, world as a kind of a retreat from the struggles of daily life. And he, but he'd been developing, you know, an idea of what made human beings tick. He he did say at one point that the only people he could stand were lunatics and children. <laughs> um, but he'd, uh, you know, he'd, he'd spent a long kind of, um, sort of ripening period where his writing was basically short stories. Mm-hmm. He'd, he'd uh, by this time, he'd written a dozen short stories, which were actually published in 1912. Mm-hmm. And, oh, he'd written lots of papers for medical journals mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. But this was all sort of small-scale stuff. That, he, you know, he'd been building up, you know, within him some kind of pressure to do something really ambitious. And, you know, he thought he really wanted to start now on a big novel. 
Right. right. So these were kind of four pressures which were all building up around the same time. So in uh, February 1911, he marries. Oh, no, he doesn't no, marry. No, he gets, he engaged. gets engaged. Yeah. He gets engaged to Erna, his wife. Um, to be um, but I if, is there any you said it wasn't a love match it was more that the, the both the families wanted a kind of a good um, you know a good dependable partner mm -hmm. for their uh, you know the, uh, the their husband or their wife mm -hmm. um, but one, and was that the standard of the time? Was that the traditional thing? Were arranged uh, marriages a thing? Oh, or? I think, you know, I think in the kind of the upwardly mobile um, classes... I'm assuming uh, was, it wasn't. Yeah. But well, no, I think my... in the upwardly mobile classes, it was very much, you know, you had to make a good match. Right. You know, okay. uh, I mean, love was a secondary uh, secondary issue. But, uh -huh, okay. you know, I mean, in Dublin's case, there was also the fact that, I mean, his heritage was Jewish. Mm -hmm. He came from Jewish families. Yes. And his family wanted a nice Jewish girl to be his his wife. Got you. Um, for the previous five years, he'd been um, he'd been with a, a non-Jewish young lady. Mm -hmm. And so that, and that you know, meant... And that was one of the nurses at the hospital? Yes. Mm. Um, so that was a bit of a wrench as well. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he wasn't... Uh, you know, she wasn't the right type for him, yeah. you know, according to the families. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. And obviously they had been together, him and um, Frida, his previous liaison for five years. So had anything come out of that relationship? Was, was there well, a this, is, uh, this also is a rather interesting uh, coincidence, which must have built up the pressure on, uh, on Dublin. Because at almost the same time that he got engaged to Erna, Frida conceived a child which was born in October of 1911. With the father being Dublin. Dublin acknowledged himself as the father, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which was very responsible of him. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, I mean, a few years later, Frida unfortunately died. I mean, in the, during the, the First World War, she died of TB, uh, probably caused by bad nutrition and so on during mm -hmm. the, uh, the blockade. Um, and so the son Bodo was uh, brought up by his grandmother in, uh, in Hamburg. But Dublin kept in touch with him. All through his life. Through his life. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. great. And then, um, so in 1912, he starts the preliminary work for Wanglin. Yes. So he had this pressure inside him that he needed to start something ambitious. Um, his eye was caught by some, you know, amid, you know, there was there was lots going on in the world outside Germany at this time. I mean, the uh, the Chinese Empire had just ended after two thousand years. His eye was caught by some uh, pieces in the newspapers about a, a, an uprising by gold panners in Siberia. Oh. These are mostly Koreans and mm -hmm. Chinese in, in Siberia. Interesting. Um, and, you know, the conditions there were such that they sort of wanted to set up their own kind of um, workers' republic, mm -hmm. which was pretty strongly stamped upon by the Tsarist um, authorities mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, tales of awful bloodshed and, uh, and so on, uh, Cossack soldiers mowing, mowing down these uh, rebellious workers. Right. So that, you know, he wrote about this in a, in a, a big linen-bound notebook, which is still in the archive. But then he'd also come across a reference to an 18th-century Chinese sectarian uprising involving a chap called... Wang Lun, right. right, and so gradually his his focus went from Siberia to 18th century China. Mm -hmm. But the 
underlying motif was much the same. You know, it's uh, um, human beings trying to live in a world where force and authority are continually bearing down on them. Mm -hmm. What's the setting in Wanglun? The, where in where in China is it? Are oh, we, are well, we talking in, a mountainous region, or are we talking in lowlands? Well, it's in the, it's it's basically the north of China, mm-hmm. um, which yeah, which is a a mixture of um, quite very rugged mountain ranges and very flat and flooded plains. So big, so picturesque scapes. Oh, there's lots yeah. of landscape, lots mm. of landscape. Yes, and he, uh, you know, just just working from looking at maps and gazetteers and uh, and uh, travelogues and so on, he managed to imagine a very realistic picture of the landscape of China. I mean, I, I, you know, I lived several years in China, so, uh, you know, I'm able to sort of judge how well he had caught it. Because sometimes when writers are writing about a foreign country, they make, you know, awful mistakes about, oh, it's obvious he's never been there because there's no such thing as this kind of river there, you know, yes. or this, this kind of thing. That's a but, really interesting segue, actually, Chris. We should say, so how, how did you, why did you think, oh, I'm going to translate Wang Lun? Right, because, well, I mean, 30, 30 odd years ago, I knew almost nothing about Dublin, mm-hmm. just as you do now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I, I, I came across an, on an Austrian railway stall, I came across two paperbacks by the author uh, Alfred Dublin, yeah. and they both looked sort of Chinesey kind of titles. I thought, well, this is interesting. I didn't realise. Who is it's, this character? Who is this yeah. character? I didn't know he had anything to do with China. Yeah. Anyway, so I bought those two paperbacks. And, you know, started reading through them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as I read, I realised, hang on, has anybody translated this into English before? Mm-hmm. And as far as I could tell, uh, no. Oh, OK, interesting. Yeah. So you found the uh, two copies. What was the other book? Oh, then? the other book. Well, this was this was very interesting because uh, the, the other book was a, um, a selection of short stories. Mm-hmm. But the title story, as I read it, mm. I realised, oh, this is actually part of the Wanglun novel. Well, why on earth is it in this separate book? Uh, and, you know, I did a little bit of digging around. Uh, I, you know, I, um, because I uh, got a degree at Hong Kong University, I had access to their library, mm-hmm. which had a, you know, a fairly small but interesting collection of books by and about Dublin. Mm-hmm. And I realised that a lot had been cut out of Dublin's manuscript mm-hmm. um, before it was published. So and a, and this story an, in the second book was the introduction got you. to the novel. Mm-hmm. And so, if it was cut out, obviously it, there was it, that was purposeful. So, as an editorial decision to remove it, right? What's but that decision, thoughts? yes. <laughs> um, what Dublin had done, he he had written to a chap called Martin Buber, mm-hmm. who was starting to become famous as a, as a, as a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, he had already written a very interesting afterword to a, to a, a translated book on Chinese philosophy, mm-hmm. which had come out a, a couple of years before. Right. Um, and he was also working as a publisher's reader. So he was obviously a kind of useful contact. Mm-hmm. So Dublin very respectfully wrote to him and asked for advice, particularly asking him to recommend any sources on 18th century China that Dublin himself hadn't been able to come across. Mm-hmm. But then when he'd finished the manuscript, 
um, Martin Buber agreed to look over the manuscript mm -hmm. and give some suggestions. Mm -hmm. And his suggestions really were, this needs to be cut down a great deal, okay. right? In focus, focus on the underlying theme uh, and uh, cut out everything which gives a kind of political uh, specific time because several of the cut episodes mm -hmm. involved the um, suppression of uh, a rebellion in what is now Xinjiang mm -hmm. in in the west northwest of China mm -hmm. um, involving some you know nomads uh, you know who sort of come and go into the certain area but right. the uh, when these nomads had wanted to settle in uh, uh, the Tsungara Basin, um, uh, they'd caused a bit of trouble and the emperor sent his army out to massacre them all. Gosh. So this was, um, all these episodes to do with that were cut. Mm -hmm. But the this introductory episode mm -hmm. was was very central to that particular aspect of the of the the manuscript, right, right. So anyway, it had to go along with that 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 whole storyline. Okay. And then this meant that then the the theme of this kind of, uh, you know, the power of the world against the, you know, the the, the powerless individual, let us say, uh -huh. um, was then became more timeless. And so, have you put it back in? Yes, my <laughs> my translation was the first time that the introduction had been reunited with the main text I see. and it and it really does make a difference because the end of the novel mm. which we'll be doing a reading from mm -hmm. at the end of this episode the end of the novel circles back to the incident in that cut right. introductory so chapter it makes more sense yes it becomes a rounded uh, kind of a rounded whole yes Interesting. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for that. We, right. we got off, not off track, but it's interesting to, you know, obviously there are editorial decisions made all along the way and you as a translator are also making some editorial decisions depending on what manuscripts you have in front of you. Um, so that's yeah, but uh, well, I mean, Dublin has suffered from some editorial decisions mm. uh, sort of all the way along i mean in uh, one of his trilogies mm -hmm. which were being edited in the 1960s to yeah. come out in in a selected work series yeah. um the editor there decided that the third volume of the trilogy was simply not worth including right. so that was a fairly major editorial decision yeah. and and drew heavy criticism from uh, from 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 the dublin industry that's yeah. very interesting. So we'll go back to how he gathered his materials. Yeah. And so he sought out different sources. So he, well, he, I, I'm I, assuming that he never travelled to China. He'd never been to China. And this mm -hmm. was something which astonished a lot of the reviewers. Okay. He had this creative spark mm -hmm. to do with this theme of, um, you know, individuals against the world. He was nurturing it with everything he could. You know, he was kind of feeding it with all things from from maps, from travelogues, mm -hmm. from. Um, Were there uh, pieces in museums? Uh, oh that? yeah, the, the 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 anthropology museum in Berlin had quite mm -hmm. a quite an extensive um, Chinese collection. Okay. So he could he could look at uh, you know the cos uh, officials' costumes, the kind mm -hmm. of badges that uh, denoted the rank of the official. Which were quite sort of picturesque, you know. Mm -hmm. Is it is it a pheasant or is it a peacock? You know, and there's a big difference in the ranks or oh, something. Right. You know, this kind of thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, and he was making notes of all kinds of 
um, Chinese names of places, mm -hmm. of people, of... Um, Did uh, he ever sketch anything down? Uh, he sketched maps, mm -hmm. things, yes. Interesting. Yeah. But he, 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 you know, all this was nourishment, nurturing this spark and filling it out with colour, with um, incidents, with uh, sort of names and places and, and so on, until it reached a stage where the facts were starting to sort of press for being put into words. Mm -hmm but words which reveal to the reader what the you know what the reality what the reality is he's he, he's he, he's very convinced that you know you shouldn't you know you you really need the words on the page and the sentences that they form to have been very deliberately constructed to bring an immediate reality to the to the reader's eye so that the reader then uh, you know, is 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 building the picture. Mm -hmm. The author is not pushing the picture onto the reader; it's emerging into the reader's mm -hmm, mind. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> as his first epic, he's gathered all the materials that he needs, and that I imagine that will continue through the writing process in some form or other. Um, but the first, like, big flush of gathering evidence and materials together, um, is is the main part of that. Uh, he did. did he? he did write it down in a fairly short time. I mean, it, they reckon it's about ten months. Okay. From starting the writing wow. to the end, and there's a you know it was a well in in his handwriting it was a kind of thousand page manuscript Gosh, which turned so into five hundred printed pages. That is a lot of time to devote to to writing when you're also working as a as a medical professional. he he would write he says he he could write on the uh, the steps outside the you know the hospital emergency room uh -huh. he, he could he could write uh, on trams you know he could write any anywhere wow. he happened to be he'd be scribbling scribbling down that's some of fantastic. these things that uh, you that's know really churning away inside him that's fascinating <clears throat> because um so often you hear about different writers processes and how they set aside time early morning or some people write late into the night or whatever. Yeah. Or you must um, have exactly this table in the cafe or yeah, that's something. It. Exactly, yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Interesting, thank you. So 10 months, quite a rapid process then. Oh, oh well, it was all coming flooding out, you know, because the, the, the germ of the idea, the fleshing out of the idea, mm -hmm. the, um, the way that, as he put it, these these ideas begin to cloak themselves in words, Ooh. right? Mm -hmm. So he, he's already basically got a lot of the words and the sentences inside him, and these were now just emerging onto the page. Okay, so did he already have a publisher at that stage? Well, there's a publisher had agreed to take a, a small volume of his 12 of his short stories, mm -hmm. and th these were in fact published in 1912. Mm -hmm. um, and had indicated that he might be interested in uh, in the novel, but when Dublin presented the manuscript, the, this publisher sort of rejected it, and the the manuscript then went around, I think, three or four other publishing houses mm -hmm. um, over the next few years, um, until eventually Sammy Fisher of the uh, S. Fisher publisher um, signed a contract with him, and that relationship really lasted until 1933. So that was a, you know, that was a good find. Mm, definitely. All right, Chris. 
So the novel has been published. He found a publisher. What was the response to it? Yeah, I mean, remember this was it was published in 1916. So something like four years had gone by between finishing writing the manuscript and actually seeing it in print. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Had you already started writing something else in between seeing uh, it in print? An entire novel. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But not, a, not an epic so. novel. Oh, not an epic. Yes. So it won't be there. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, no, the, uh, the reviewers were, were, were astonished and, for the most part, very enthusiastic. Um, and and, and they, 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 they sort of reacted with wonder at the way that, you know, kind of China appeared in such a real um, environment and a real culture, mm-hmm. um, which no other European writer had ever achieved in a in a, in a foreign locale um there was a, there was only one uh, reviewer who was very sniffy about the fact that the novel had won a prize and thought that this demeaned the prize what prize did it, it was win? called the fontana prize uh, okay. named after theodore fontana who was the kind of the the doyen of the the kind of the the 19th century middle class social um novel and and in terms so the critics enjoyed it Yes. But was it, what about the everyday person on the street? Was it being bought? By, uh, well, it went, it went through, it, um, well? it, it went through many, print, 12 printings, I think, up to 1923. Oh, gosh, okay. So, that, so you know, that was, was I think before Berlin Alexanderplatz, this was the one of his books that did, that did sell. Great. The only, the only people who didn't effusively welcome it mm-hmm. were his old friends from the Expressionist circle around the uh, the journal Der Sturm. They, they completely ignored it. And why was that? Well, uh, although Dublin retained friendly relations with them, yeah. his idea about what word art should be aiming at was sort of diametrically opposed to what you know, some of the expressionists were yes. were aiming at. Because Dublin's word art was aimed at digging down into a very, you know, deep reality beneath the surface of 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 the world, between the surface of, of life. Course. But the uh, you know the expressionists were sort of oh let's put let's put lots of words together in lots of exciting ways and so on. <laughs> I remember I, I we've definitely talked about this in a previous yeah. episode briefly. Yeah. Yes, okie dokie. Um, well, I, does that wrap us up a little bit? Are we ready for our reading? Uh, well, uh, we could be, and you know, possibly the reading will give rise to one or two more questions. Okay, yeah, great. Right. let's go for it. Um, right, so I've, I've I've selected the last four pages of the uh, of the novel. Okay, which is quite interesting because the the first passage depicts the government in very jubilant mood at having crushed all these nasty rebels mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and dealing with them in a fairly merciless way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Emperor Qianlong is uh, really quite, uh, uh, quite gleeful about all the action taken to, uh, uh, okay. in, 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 uh, against the rebels. Macabre. But then the passage then that you'll read mm-hmm. is the wife of one of the generals who's been involved in crushing the rebels mm-hmm. and she has lost her son and a daughter in the turmoil. Oh. Uh, she is travelling south to, uh, to seek um, comfort mm-hmm. from the, uh, the goddess Guan Yin. Okay. Right. So we have the Emperor Qianlong, mm-hmm. 
um, and uh, Hai Tang is the wife of the, the general. Okay. Right. So we'll... Let's go. Yeah, let's go. <clears throat> Government measures winding up this affair lasted a month. During this time, prisoners were transported to Peking. Qianlong interrogated the greater part of them personally to ascertain connivance by officials and dilatoriness in persecution. Then the brothers and sisters were sentenced before a large crowd outside Peking in accordance with the law against heresy. Their families and the families of known rebels were banished to the Ili and to Mongolia, some 2,000 people in all. Wang Lun's home village was burned to the ground. The remains of his parents were exhumed, dismembered. All residents of the village were driven out and their scanty chattels were confiscated. The corpses of the rebels rotted in the streets of Linqing, poisoned the air until the few remaining inhabitants turned to the prefect. Then a decree of the emperor ordered the carcasses to be gathered and piled outside the wall near the Grand Canal. Two wide, shallow graves were dug for the men and women on the riverbank, at a spot where evil spirits congregated. Into these were tipped barrow loads of cavities. Debris from the burned-out houses and charred beams were piled on top. From the canal, these two long grave mounds and rubble heaps looked like the backs of two giant moles scrabbling out of the earth. Qianlong basked. Officers, generals, high officials, advisers who had taken part in the suppression of the rebellion received titles of honour, estates. On the day of the Thanksgiving festival, the emperor inscribed in a firm hand in the inner hall of the Confucius temple, Had Confucius been here, he would not have proceeded more thoroughly than I. While the corpses still rotted in the quiet streets and in the houses of Lingqing, Hai Tang, the governor's wife, travelled on a great ship of mourning, surrounded by her women, along the coast to her southern homeland. She wanted to travel alone. She told Xiao Wei, when he sold his house in Shanghai Quan, that he should take a concubine, have a son by her. Soft autumn came. The ship glided along the southern coast. From the town's music shrilled. Harvest processions thudded in the fields. Junk streaked playfully over the dark water. Hai Tang, still as death, on the broad heavy ship. She did not journey directly to her home. The ship anchored off the island of Putashan. Hai Tang wanted to go before the merciful goddess, Kuan Yin secure for herself the prayers of the most pious monks. Sunny jags of granite peaks, dreaming tucked in landscapes, slender fan palms with clear voices, camellias, a hundred thousand, transpiring ponds, floating lilies, between hedges, behind stony paths, a temple at the foot of the cliff, stretched out sky. Supported by two women, Hai Tang rustled along the path in grey, voluminous clothes, grey veil over her face. They went through the entrance hall, across the vast terrace and the platform in front of the prayer hall. Hai Tang's eyes tolerated the reliefs on the steep breastwork of the terrace, 
extolling childish love. In front of the altar, the eternal flame smoked in its carved wooden niche. Curtains, patchwork carpets, standards, drums, incense. Goddess Guanyin, huge at the back. She sat there by the wall in a white robe, left hand delicately raised. Her face was golden. She wore a crown of five lotus leaves. Her blue hair was fastened with a diadem. She sat on the marble plinth, slender of hip, strong-legged, head leaning slightly back, violet bib. White silk flowed over her narrow shoulders. The eyelids beneath black brows were lowered, but the yellowish lashes, thin, slightly parted lips, seemed to flutter gently. In such mildness she kept her silence, in such absorption she heard and gave. Tablets and banners praised her. Guan Yin, great friend, her merciful boat conveys all across. Her grace is vast as the waves of the sea. She arose for everyone, a mother's heart. Her golden body will not perish. Monks in brown robes pressed foreheads to the ground before her. Murmurs, tinkling, a soft chant. Haitang crumpled her veil, breathed gustily and smiled, gazed away over the monks. It was late evening. The island was vanishing in the darkness. Bearing lanterns, a hundred monks left their cells and chapels in procession along stony paths. Haitang had donated a vast sum in order that they should pray for her to the goddess. She sat at the bend in the path under a boulder of granite. The procession murmured past, arms crossed, cowl after cowl. She paid the monks an endless stream. Proud, triumphant, she surveyed the boundless throng. She must succeed in overpowering the goddess. Peace, peace was what she wanted. Wang Lun had taken both children from her. Vengeance had failed, and even had it succeeded, would have been of no use. Peace for herself, peace for her dead children, endless, ever-renewed floggings for Wang Lun. It grew calm in her as the torches vanished amid chanting into the temple. She gulped the warm air. The goddess had better look out, now the monks were crowding in on her, struggling with her for Hai Tang. Her maids got to their feet. Hai Tang returned to the ship for the night. The next evening, she sat once more under the boulder of granite. The torches swayed past. In the darkness, she turned her triumphant face, contorted with hate, towards the dark temple. She shook her arms over the heads of the monks. On the third evening, she sent her maids away. The murmur of the procession filled the paths. Haitang stared into the dazzling torchlight. She fell down, screamed, tore her breast. The goddess was stronger. The monks could not prevail. They could pray and pray and pray. Who had the strength? Who could save her? Then it seemed to her the monks were back already. There was a rustling, a gleam played over the ground. In the light of the newly risen moon, slender-hipped Guan Yin walked past her, mother of pearl white. The diadem on her curly hair flashed grass green when she turned her inclined head.
She smiled, looked at Hai Tang, said, Hai Tang, leave your breast alone. Your children sleep beside me. Be calm. Do not resist. Oh, do not resist. Hai Tang looked again into the green trailing moonlight. She sat up, pressed shoveled hands over her cold face. Be calm. Not resist. Have I the strength? So, uh, yeah, thanks for that reading, Katie. Um, I think there's a few things to say about both of them, and that's the the very cinematic style of the words that he is using to bring very, very vivid scenes before our eyes with very economical means. Oh, absolutely, especially when they talk. he talks about cadavers, corpses. <laughs> I mean, it's quite powerful. <laughs> Yeah, it's well, quite macabre, well, this is interesting. Well. This, of course, is before the First World War. Yeah, um, I, I feel like it's very dark. Like yeah. It's, it's, if you didn't know better, you would say he was suffering from something like post-traumatic stress. Like he's, he's got such... The, the picture that he paints is very... And yet he hasn't been through the First World War yet. Not yet, not yet. And yet, yeah. I mean, there are many scenes in Wang Lun which are extremely violent. Mm. Um, and very visceral, and he's been criticised by this by you know some quite eminent critics, mm. including W. G. Sebold, who wrote a whole PhD dissertation on, um, partly on on Dublin's kind of predisposition to intensely violent scenes. Mm -hmm. and why um, was why was he critical? Uh, well, because he thought this was uh, this was some kind of um, psychological aberration, which didn't really uh serve much the purpose of literature oh i see um, okay yeah but in fact i mean uh, i mean i mean a lot of the passages they are very powerful yeah and they draw you in to the situation that the participants find themselves in yeah and then the first surely, world, the that's... first world war comes along and you know intensifies this tenfold yeah surely if if you're painting a rich picture that is the purpose of the of the text, isn't it? Yes, to paint a yes. rich picture. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But, you know. but I mean this cinematic style was something that you know you know, even in, in, in nineteen eleven mm. when the cinema was barely, I don't know what, twenty years old, mm. um he was saying, you know, literature should be adopting the techniques of the cinema to get through to reality. Right. Sorry, I was just flicking because obviously we have the book in front of us, The Three Leaps of Wanglin, and I wanted to see where it set the scene in that first part that we we read. Um, and you're right, it's, it's like there's such a change of scene as well from the part that you read, Chris, and then suddenly the part I was reading where it said soft autumn came. Yes. And it's like that now suddenly you've jumped to it and it, you haven't, he hasn't jumped with a, a chapter break. He's jumped a with a, it's just with a, a paragraph. paragraph. It's just a paragraph. Yeah, yes. yeah there's no, no. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a shift. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. I mean, it's a, it's, it's quite um, uh, a tongue, not a tongue twister, but it's um, there are parts of it. Obviously, the names. And that kind of thing, the Chinese names that I'm yeah, not familiar with. Exactly, they're they're quite alien to any of the the, yeah, the readers in so. 1920s Germany. Yeah. Yes, 
Yeah. I mean, we did have a we had a little conversation before doing the reading separately off air where you were trying to teach me how to say some of the names. <laughs> yeah. and that was quite interesting, especially turning the the K into a G. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, I have to say that I did clean up the romanizations quite considerably okay. because I mean, Dublin was yeah. drawing on all kinds of disparate texts which had used different systems of romanizing mm. Chinese characters. It was a nightmare trying mm. to trying to work out what they were referring to. Mm. But you know, there's a very much cleaned up text in terms of romanization. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Would how you like, long, would Chris? You... How long have you been studying Chinese for? I began to study Chinese in 1966. Amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. I mean, you'd here... be thoroughly employable now. Well, with <laughs> well here I still am. Yeah. Anyway, would you like to know, I mean, looking back on his first magnificent epic, yes. what, what, were, what were Dublin's feelings, let's say, 40 years later? Would you like to know? Yes, very much so. Right, OK. Yeah. So How does he feel about it? This is what he says in an essay he wrote in 1948. Mm -hmm. right? I saw how the world, defined as nature and society, rolls over people like a mighty iron tank. Wang Lun experienced this. Oh, you notice mighty iron tank. That's First World War imagery, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Wang Lun experienced this. Along with other wounded souls, he retreats from this violent anti-human world and even without attacking it, he presents a challenge. Still, it rolls over him and his friends. In this case, the world proves stronger. Nothing else is proven. Right, so he wrote that in the year that he turned 70, uh, considering he was in his 30s when he wrote Wang Lun. That's... Uh, you know, quite a long timeline to be looking back on your achievements. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, for a, a gap of 40 years. So, you know, he's been quite reflective. Yeah, well, th this is it. He, he, he was fairly unique, I think, among all the great writers mm. in developing a theory of what literary creation is mm. and actually embodying it in very substantial works. And Chris, how old was he when he died? Well, he died in 1957, just before reaching 80. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Chris, I did notice as we were reading through, actually, there were a few uh, misprints. Um, so, <laughs> I read the word who, oh, and it said like W-H-O-O. -O oh, like Lord. That. Don't please Is talk to just... me about misprints. I had no responsibility whatsoever for these. Okay, I so think that's the, just like uh, like the, the computerized system that the paperback. The... the paperback, I believe, was produced from an optical character readout from the original edition of 1991. Uh, okay. uh -huh. And the problem was the optical character readout misinterpreted occasional letters mm. or clusters of letters. Mm -hmm. And um, there's one particular horrible example I noticed there where the letter lowercase d mm -hmm. was interpreted as lowercase c and l. <laughs> okay. And so as a, as a sentence which involves black dung becomes black clung. clung. <laughs> but I was given well, no opportunity. I was yeah. given no opportunity whatever to correct the proofs before oh, the paperback that's a came shame. out. That's yes. a shame. Yeah. Well, you never know. There might be another edition. Oh, I'm I'm sure there will be you know, decades <laughs> uh, as we go along. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, I think that that 
concludes this episode today. Um, what do you think, Chris? Well, this was the, the first of our episodes actually dealing with one of the epic novels. Yes. So epic there world. will be there will be others. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, including you notice that the last sentence of the quotation that that that, that you read, Katie, yeah. was had a question mark. It did. And yes. this is Be this calm, is interesting. Not resist. Have I the strength? Have I the strength? And this actually segues into a major theme in his next major epic novel, Wallenstein of the Thirty Years' War. How exactly ah. that happens, we will have to explore in a later episode. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Chris. I think that's goodbye from me. Well, thank you, Katie, and it's goodbye from me. Excellent. Bye bye, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Epic Worlds of Alfred Döblin. Join us next time to explore more about this fascinating writer's life and works. Meanwhile, visit the website beyond-alexanderplatz.com for posts about Döblin and some of his unjustly neglected contemporaries, as well as downloads of translations. So until next time, happy reading!